Greetings from Gotham City. It is great to be here. I nearly didn't get here today because of the uh, weather pattern, and uh, it is a thrill to be back here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I want to thank my gracious host, Dr. Keithley, and the Bush Center for inviting me here uh, to give this uh, lecture on cultural engagement. I'll also be here at lunch tomorrow giving a, uh, a lecture on uh, my mentor and a hero of mine in the faith, uh, Carl F.H. Henry, who was uh, noted by Newsweek magazine as the leading theologian of the evangelical movement a generation ago, and I wrote a book about him. So if you're interested in sort of the philosophical and theological and more heady academic part of it, uh, that's tomorrow. Tonight we're going to talk about Kanye. Now, um, I, do want to, I do want to bring you greetings from uh, the King's College uh, in New York City. And I just want to say a brief word about uh, kings so that you will know how to pray. Uh, If you think about it this way, there are 4,000 institutions of higher education in this country. About half of them are public. About half of them are private. Um, Of those private institutions, uh, you will know that many of them were founded on an explicitly Christian basis, uh, many of which were founded particularly to advance the cause of God and truth in this world and the gospel. And as you know, the, the history of higher education in America is that institutions drift away from their historic Christian and theological moorings. And... Um, it seems to generally be the, uh, the case that the drift is leftward. Now, thankfully, we are here at an institution that has uh, bucked that trend. Southeastern Seminary uh, recovered uh, the, the, the gospel a, a generation ago, and for that we're very thankful. And under Dr. Aiken and Dr. Patterson's uh, able leadership here, But uh, when you think about those, maybe there are still a couple hundred institutions out there, both Catholic and Protestant, that may have some distant, vague memory of the fact that there's a Christian uh, origin story to their institution. They might still have a, uh, a chapel on campus. They might have some religious services and so forth. But of those, there are really only about 125 to 130 institutions with a Christ-centered mission statement that train undergraduate students in this country. Most of those are affiliated with an organization called the, the Council for Christian Colleges and, uh, and Universities. And of that 130 or so, there is only one situated in a place that sociologists call an alpha city. Now, what is an alpha city? An alpha city is a place that financially, culturally, and artistically shapes all of culture. And on earth, there are only two alpha plus plus cities, London and New York, and number one is New York. And so the King's College is on Wall Street. We are a unicorn. Uh, No offense, but... Most Christian colleges and universities, as Timothy George said in an interview with me uh, a couple of months ago, are located about 50 miles from any known sin, okay? About as far away from actually engaging culture um, as, uh, as one might imagine. But we're right there in the belly of the beast. So you know how to pray, and we're, we're sending students out to engage Wall Street and the media. People complain about the media, where is the media? Uh, hello, it's in New York City. A lot of it is. And so uh, do pray for us as we engage on, on that mission. And uh, I, I couldn't let it go because, listen, we, we have to be very clear. Um, there, there cannot be uh, any doubt that our adversary, the devil, wouldn't be happy that there would be such an institution committed to uh, the truth of Jesus Christ in a place such as that. So uh, thank you for that indulgence and, and um, uh, letting me talk to you about how to know how to pray for the King's College there on Wall Street. And please, if you visit New York City, as many people do, we are right up there from the Bull, situated in between the Bull, the New York Stock Exchange and Trinity Church Wall Street. If you've seen National Treasure, now you know where we are. And... Um, uh, So come visit us uh, when you come uh, visit the city. People sometimes uh, ask me on the subway 
uh, what I do for a living. And I always like talking to them about the King's College, partly because um, there's this famous Broadway musical out right now on Alexander Hamilton um, that has taken the country by storm. I think the next time you can actually get a ticket to Hamilton the Musical is sometime late in 2018, uh, but it has really taken Broadway by storm. But uh, Alexander Hamilton went to the first King's College in New York City that later became Columbia University. And sometimes people will say, now, the King's College, wasn't that what Columbia University once was? And I said, oh, we serve different kings. Oh, and then that's a good joke to begin talking about uh, why the King's College in New York City is a little bit different than most of the institutions uh, with which they're familiar. But sometimes when people ask me, what do you do for a living? I say that it is my job to convince the next generation of students not to sign up for the church of what's up now. not to sign up for the church of what's up now. And uh, that is definitely a full-time plus-plus job because um, we are, as many of you know, if you're following the sociological data, we are entering this age uh, that has a generation of millennials that have hard time, a hard time thinking in uh, concrete, sequential logical propositional categories and uh, you have to uh, fish for a 10 pound fish with a five pound test line sometimes it it feels like and so um, we have to think very carefully about how we do this thing called cultural engagement Um, and I want to just say a word about that because it's kind of a, a little bit of a sore subject with me because I Everywhere that I go, Christians talk about engaging the culture. We want to engage the culture. And uh, listen, I'm all for that. I mean, we, we live in New York City. We send our students into Wall Street and into the, the leading banks and the media firms and the art institutions. I'm all for that. But we have to also realize that culture is not something that is out there. It is we are suffused in it. I, I sometimes like to remind people or tell them for the first time about a commercial that I used to see on television. Uh, there was this character in, in 1970s and 80s television. Her name was Madge. And she was always telling people about palm olive dish liquid, which was before most people had automatic dishwashers. And she would be in a nail salon, and she would be raving about how this new dishwashing liquid that she had discovered did not dry out your hands when you were washing dishes. And inevitably, the person would say, tell me more about this product, I want to know about it. And Madge would always say, with the lady's hands, you know, uh, getting her nails done. So she would say, you're soaking in it. So when people say, I want to engage culture, sometimes I want to say, guess what? Too late. Culture has already engaged you. You are soaking in it. To pretend that you are outside of it and that it's something that you can sort of bomb in and engage, you know, piously and... uh sort of uh, triumphalistically, is uh, maybe not going to get you much of a hearing uh, with, with uh, people who are a part of culture and, and in culture. And so that gets us really where we are uh, t- tonight, um, because I think everywhere that I go in the country, people are feeling like Mordor awaits, Right? Um, And institutions like Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the King's College increasingly increasingly feel like Rivendell, right? The last homely house this side of the Misty Mountains, right? The last little patch of civilization before the encroachments of of Mordor. And um, uh, it would be very easy for us as many are calling for us now to do, which is to sort of hunker down and, um, you know, prepare for the Benedict Option apocalypse. 
And uh, I certainly understand those tendencies. But tonight what I would like to do is um, I would like to talk about uh, maybe how we can think about, um, if I can use this sort of crass terminology, growing the business uh, in in the world of uh, the people of God, of, of, of the church. And um, how we can think anew about our role as shepherds in this culture. And um, you might be thinking, now, how does, how does Cain and Abel relate to Kanye West? Well, I promise I'm going to get there. And really what I want to do tonight is I want to engage in sort of a thought experiment uh, with you tonight. I want to throw out maybe some ideas, some of which might be provocative, and then really just in, engage you to see about uh, how you're thinking about these things. Um, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm not the, you know, the smart guy with the bow tie from New York City bombing in to tell you how it must be. But I will say this uh, before I read our passage of Scripture tonight as we Get going. I am concerned that our attitude towards things that people deeply, deeply care about in things like popular culture, our Christian leaders and theologians, and as Friedrich Nietzsche called them, the turkey cocks of God, seem to have this imperious, disdainful, sarcastic, critical attitudes toward. Smack, smack, smack. We just regard it all as ridiculous and absurd, and we think that's going to get people running into the arms of the church. Not so fast. My guess is probably not. So when I know people with elite art degrees that went week before last to Madison Square Garden with 30,000 other people to be inspired by the new Yeezy fashion line and Kanye's new album, The Life of Pablo. These are not dumb bunnies, okay? These are not people that are uh, just complete idiots, Um And if we want to talk to the people that fill those kinds of stadiums, um, I think it would be helpful for us to think about our role as shepherds in this culture. So if you have a text of scripture, I would like for you to uh, turn in them to uh, Genesis chapter 4. And I want to read the story of of Cain and Abel as a frame for for what I would like to um, talk about this evening. Would you please rise in uh, honor of the reading of God's holy word? Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground, And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is desire for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood 
is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are a curse from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so, for if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Will you briefly bow your heads and just pray with me? Our Father and our God, we pray that as we stand before your word, the Bible, and we think about our responsibility to share the good news of Jesus with this generation, that we might be tender-hearted and forgiving, even as you, in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, forgave us. Forgive us of our sins and help us to be ambassadors of reconciliation for the good news, by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you be seated? Now, I have to say that when I was growing up, I had my laundry list of Bible passages that really, really bothered me. I grew up a pastor's kid. Um, My father was an expositional preacher, a godly man. My mother read to me from the Puritans uh, from the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And um, so I heard these texts a lot. And I was one of those kids that was troubled by certain passages in the Bible that didn't seem to add up with things that I knew to be true um, uh, from, from, uh, from my experience in church. For example, you know, I was bothered by the wedding in Cana uh, because Jesus turned the water into wine. And, um, but then I figured out that there were two miracles at the wedding of Cana, that Jesus must have turned it back into water before it hit their stomachs. So, um, so I always had a way to work it out, you know, in my own mind. Um, I wasn't as smart as one of your former uh, lecturers here at Southeastern, Don Carson, who when he was a little kid wondered how there could be five solas of the Reformation. And if you think about it, that's actually, that's actually pretty profound. How can there be five solas? Um, but the Cain and Abel story always really bothered me because it seemed like God's response was pretty arbitrary here, right? Why would God have regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's offering? Now, because I was suffused in the Puritans growing up, you know, typically what you get is that somehow this is a prefiguration of the sacrificial system and that Abel had figured out a way to prefigure the sacrificial system and that's why God preferred his offering better. But I don't know. It it didn't really seem to be explicitly stated that that was the reason in the text and so maybe there were other possibilities and interpretations. And whenever I have run into a roadblock on some of these things, what I will often do is I will uh, look at a rabbinic and, and historic Jewish commentary on these texts. And what I found, um, to my amazement, is quite a bit of um, agreement over what is really going on in this passage. Now, you might disagree, but at least this is one interpretation that... Um, is certainly plausible, and, and it is this. When you look at Cain and Abel, that we're dealing with an, an agrarian culture, right? And we're profoundly aware of the curse of Adam, that, that, that the ground is cursed. And what 
Many Jewish commentators, including my friend Yoram Hazoni, who is uh, the, the head of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem, a preeminent uh, uh, Jewish theologian, says about this text is that what's going on here is that Cain merely accepts the curse as a given, as intractable, and he's thorn and thistles, thorn and thistles, and he's working with his hands to toil and work the ground, and um, he has this vegetable farm. Abel, on the other hand, knows how to deploy sheep. He is a shepherd. Now, if you actually know what sheep are good for, they are excellent for toiling the ground and eating up the thorns and thistles. They think they're delicious. Sheep eat anything. And they keep a pasture fertilized. So if you plant, you get a much bigger crop. What... Abel somehow realized, according to several Jewish commentators, is how to actually fulfill the cultural mandate. He refuses just to accept the bad news of the curse of the fall. He figures out a way to fulfill the the cultural mandate and the creation mandate by employing sheep as a new technology. Now, I'm sure that you've never thought of sheep before as a technology, but what many Jewish commentators say is that Abel becomes the prototype of the shepherd motif in Scripture. And for the rest of Scripture, the shepherd motif is the thing that is lifted up and valued by God as the way to rule. And in this particular circumstance, Abel sits back and watches the sheep work while his brother sits there and toils the ground. And so the regard, or so it is said, that God has for Cain's uh, or for Abel's uh, sacrifice over Cain's sacrifice is not the fact that God likes uh, lamb chops you know, more than he likes, you know, rutabagas. That's not what's going on here. It's that Abel had figured out a way to expand the kingdom. And thus, this is the beginning of the shepherd motif. And you notice that um, the shepherd motif that continues all the way throughout the patriarchs, this is who the patriarchs are. For those of you that have studied philosophy, you know the story of Pascal, that when his dead body was found and his garments were being removed, he had sewn into his garments the following phrase, fire, God, not of the philosophers, but of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus Christ. Those patriarchs and that son of King David, and David himself were all shepherds. And what we see in the history of Israel is that the Jewish people, time and again, amongst admittedly very adverse circumstances, great persecution and exile, are able time and time again to take the uh, the results of their own sinful situation and of the fall in general and turn, make a garden of paradise out of the desert sand. This is the story of contemporary modern day Israel, which whatever we can say about Israel being the Holy Land, one of the reasons why Uh, Israel is such a fascinating place to go is because of the economic miracle that has happened there. I mean, you can see where the green grass ends and Syria begins. That is, that is the genius of the Jewish people. And by the way, for those of you that are interested in that aspect of things, 
But if you're interested more in sort of the Cain and Abel part, you should read Yoram Hazoni's book, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture. I would uh, recommend that to you. If you're interested in, in how Israel has taken this shepherd motif on using available technologies to expand their reach, look at books like Startup Nation by Dan Senor and Paul Singer and Let There Be Water by Seth Siegel. How... Israel has found a way to take a very difficult, arid, dry environment in the 20th century and use things like desalinization plants and anything to create a garden of paradise out of the desert sand. And although shepherding is very clearly hard work, the shepherd motif of, of allowing sheep to tend pastures and field and fields, and you think about all the things, all the products that sheep gave ancient Near Eastern cultures, clothing and all of the rest. You can see how being a shepherd gave you time, the technology of sheep herding gave you time to do things like be a musician like King David. It gave an opportunity for him to write poetry while the sheep were out there just doing their thing. And clearly, Jesus is the greatest of all shepherds because his sheep do the work for him even while he is in his session in heaven. So he is the great shepherd, the ultimate example because we are doing his work for him here on earth. You see how it works? It all goes back there to that able motif. So when you look at Hebrews chapter 12, 24, you see this imagery coming back of, of the great shepherd. So here is what I find troubling, and now here's where I'm going to start going to meddling, Okay. I am troubled by the fact that increasingly evangelical Christian theologians and writers and other assorted leaders seem to have taken on this mantle of anti-technology, anti-economic development, And uh, there's all this hand-wringing over how uh, things like technology and modern society are um, bringing us to the precipice of Abaddon and uh, the apocalypse in general. Now, this sort of Luddite, anti-technology, anti-expansion, really kind of anti-economic growth motif that I see growing by leaps and bounds in a lot of the Christian colleges and universities that I go to, and I'm sure that the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary is not guilty of this in any way whatsoever, because you have a provost like uh, like Bruce Ashford that is <clears throat> writing on these issues. But that background has a respectable origin. When you look at the writers that young evangelical people like, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Wendell Berry, they have an anti, anti-growth, anti-technological bias. They, they, they like the bucolic, pastoral way it was. You know, Wendell Berry contrasts the boomers versus the stickers. You're better off staying in Port Royal, Kentucky and tending your own little farm than going off and doing anywhere. And everybody goes weak in the knees, you know, when they read Wendell Berry, you know, on, on, these, on these issues. As a matter of fact, in certain circles, I have found it not safe to criticize Wendell Berry in public uh, because his canon of writings have been adopted as akin to the book of second opinions. Um, Or, I mean, if you really want to touch the third rail, uh, um, you know, I mean, what what contemporary urbane evangelical sermon would would not falter without the um, uh, O, uh, C, S, L, Q? 
the obligatory C.S. Lewis quote, right? I mean, you gotta, you gotta put it in there, you gotta have, if you're wanting to do apologetics, you gotta have the C.S. Lewis quote going for you there. And listen to what he says. He says, there's something which unites magic and applied science, and it is called technology. But it separates us from the wisdom of earlier ages. For those wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is a technique. Now my question is, why do we have to choose between these two options? Why are they mutually opposed to one another? Why can't we say, as Abel did, there is a way for us to work smarter and less and better and at the same time try to conform the soul to objective reality while they are doing that? Why do we give this ground away? So what I want to say to you is, Bring on the robots. Um, you know, let's let's uh, let's be open to uh, these these sorts of uh, things. And so, people that um, that adopt this sort of anti-shepherd motif uh, can find themselves in all kinds of stitch, sticky situations and oppose themselves to good aspects of our culture that. Um, uh, might actually lead people to thinking about uh, the creation and cultural mandate in, in the book of Genesis. I also fear that there is another element that prevents us from giving the shepherd motif its due uh, in contemporary evangelical church life and cultural engagement, and it is ironically, our strong preaching on the theology of grace. Because if you are not careful, a theology of grace will sound like a repudiation of something that made Western civilization in general, and America in particular, great. And that is something called the Protestant work ethic. Good old Max Weber. And here is where we get to Kanye. All right, with fear and trepidation, here I go. I was asked to speak at my alma mater, um, a a wonderful uh, Christian liberal arts college in Pennsylvania several months ago, and they asked me, Uh, what I would like to talk about. And I said, well, is there anything you want me to talk about? And they said, no, you get to choose. And I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) And they said, yeah, talk about whatever you want to talk about. I said, okay. So a couple weeks beforehand, they were getting ready to roll out all the publicity and the posters and everything. And they said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, I'm going to talk about Kanye West. And so... uh, They put up the posters and so forth, and we had a huge packed room. And I ran this thought experiment uh, with great fear and trepidation. And here is is what I said. And I won't go into it all right now, but believe it or not, I could probably talk for about the next two hours on, uh, on Kanye West. But here was my thought experiment. First of all, I said, let's just for a moment suspend whatever prejudices you might already bring to the table when you're, you know, if you know anything about Kanye, you probably remember him interrupting Taylor Swift, okay, at the MTV Music Awards. You probably remember him saying George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. It's going to be, or one of his Twitter outbursts or rants or something like that. Um, But if you actually look at uh, some of the recent articles that have been written on Kanye West in the New York Times and in Vanity Fair... Uh, a, a different picture emerges, and so here's here's what I said. All right now, this is almost as bad or worse than criticizing Wendell Berry or C.S. Lewis. 
I said, this is just a thought experiment. I'm not arguing this thesis per se, but it's just a thought experience experiment. Uh, what if it is the case that Kanye West is the most um, God-concerned, entrepreneurial, family man living in America today? You can see people kind of stiffening up and tensing up and, and, and so forth. And yet, uh, here is someone that is absolutely obsessed with developing uh, different brands, of uh, starting new businesses, of uh, giving back to his community. Uh, here is someone who is so radically dedicated to his wife and family that he doesn't even believe in buying Christmas presents. He says, if you cannot create something brand new for the one you love, then you shouldn't give any gift at all. Really absolutely committed to his, his, his wife and to uh, his children. And, and on and on uh, that goes where you, 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 you step back and you realize that there may be a reason why, and you might think this is totally bunk, there might actually be a reason why the Art Institute of Chicago, which by all accounts is the leading art school in America, would want to give an honorary doctorate to Kanye West for his insights into um, the, the future uh, of art. Uh, and if you go back and you listen to his, uh, his acceptance speech, the, uh, the Twitter rant, Kanye, fades into the background and he um, talks in a much more humble position about his intense desire to learn and to do everything he can possibly do while he is still alive. I mean, this is a guy who several years ago, went to the Swedish fashion designer, uh, Johnny Johansson, in, uh, in, in Stockholm, and walked in and very innocently wanted to get an internship at Acne, fashion design brand in Sweden. He didn't want to cut in line. He didn't want to jump the process. He wanted to learn. He applied to go to Central St. Martin's for fashion school uh, in, in London. And let's be honest, Kanye West, whatever you think about what he says about God, and most of it is crazy, is talking more about God than anybody else in pop culture today. So I find it a little bit curious that um, if Christians say anything at all about him, it's just a slap or it's negative or it is uh, completely dismissive. Here is, here is someone who... Uh, at this Madison Square Garden event, okay? By the way, he is someone that wants to, wants to democratize the price of clothing, high-end clothing, in the same way that, let, let me ask this question. How much does a, a, a single, a record single cost on iTunes? One song, if you buy it. 99 cents or a dollar 29, right? How much did a 45 cost, 45 record cost in 1965? About a dollar, right? The reason why, now some people are lamenting the democratization of the music industry, but the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that music is now more accessible to everybody. 
than it ever was before. So his desire is to, to bring down, uh, it, it down to the level where everybody can have access to the highest end uh, uh, clothing. Here's the only person way out there on the radical left that loves Ben Carson, that thinks Ben Carson is the jam, that called him up, tried for three weeks to get Ben Carson on the phone and say, I think that got to be president, right? So there's this sort of childlike desire to, to do everything he can, to develop however much he can, to the point of, um, you know, now what did he say this week? He's $53 million in debt. But at this mega event that he did in Madison Square Garden, and that's what, that's what entrepreneurs do. They go into debt to build the brands and their vision that they see. Uh, this was not widely reported, but... Um, uh, at the very end of this presentation with all these fashion and his new record and all these things that he was doing, the very thing, last thing he talked about, he said, I'm developing a video game about how my mother lived her life and it ends, the, the goal of the game is to see her uh, die and be taken into the arms of Jesus in heaven. So he's spending Millions of dollars on trying to develop a video game which uh, results in having his mother uh, enter the gates of heaven. Now, Kanye is, uh, and I I have to apologize for him because one of the things that he always talks about is that I I knew that if I lectured on Kanye uh, back at Messiah College, a lot of people would show up. And they did. It was a packed house. I put Kanye on the program tonight. And my guess is a couple of people said, I wonder what he's going to say about Kanye. So I have to apologize for Kanye because I too am using him. But here's my point. Here's kind of where I want to, here's kind of where I want to park the bus. Then I want to see what you have to think. Um, the point, Kanye was my MacGuffin. If any, any of you Alfred Hitchcock fans out there, the MacGuffin is always, it's, it's the thing that, you think that the narrative is about, but it's not actually about that. It's really about something else. Kanye was my MacGuffin. He was a way of trying to get you into the door and, and create a conversation. But here's, here's my worry and here's my question. When I think back upon the history of, of the Protestant and evangelical influence in America... And the way in which it, it was people that were deeply rooted in the Protestant church that developed the infrastructure for the economy that we, in, in which we now find ourselves. We are still largely running off of the truck of people like John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and Nicholas Tesla, all people, despite their youthful uh, mistakes, were people of, uh, of a deep sense that they owed something to God, at least deeply pious, regardless of whether or not whatever we might want to say about their spiritual condition. They felt it they felt an obligation and an onus upon them to develop, to expand, to take their God-given talents and do absolutely as much as they could for the world. And I'm happy to answer the questions about wasn't industrialization bad compared to what was before? No. Compared to... Living conditions for the poor before these guys came along? No. But we can talk about that. But here is my question. Do we have people on our team like that right now? I'm talking about the capital H home T team. I am a C-H- I am a C-H-R-A-S-T-I-A-M. And I love C-H-R-A-S-T-I-A-M-A-H-E-A-R-T. You know, right? Who do we have on our team that is like that? Who can we point to? My concern and my worry 
is maybe this, you know, deep, wonderful, mysterious doctrine of grace that we preach and love and is absolutely fundamental to the gospel. By the way, it is the thing that Kanye West rejects. He doesn't believe in petitionary prayer. He doesn't believe he needs to be saved from anything. Does it sound familiar? Donald Trump, right? Uh, so there's a problem there. Yes, that doctrine of grace is true. And yet, could it be that that insistence has taken away that drive to actually engage and to develop culture? I just want to end with... Uh, with the story of someone who is really on point about the kind of people our team used to turn out. And uh, a good example of this is um, Bill Lear. Bill Lear grew up in a single-family household uh, with a father and no mother. His mother walked out on him when he was just a small boy. His father, Reuben, taught his son that success is in inverse uh, proportion to effort. And every Sunday, they went to church at the Moody Church in Chicago, where the whole mentality was, how are we going to reach people for Christ, and how are we going to save this city, not just spiritually, but economically and infrastructure-wise? This was the preaching of the Moody Church. And so when Bill Lear grew up, he knew that if he wanted something to happen, he had to make it happen himself. And so I think you'll be familiar with some of his uh, technologies. He did research into radio theory and he uh, studied the scientific principles behind sound. He loved music, so he was the first person to create really good amplifiers for speakers. He hated bulkiness, so he pioneered miniaturization in radio technology. He wanted fast planes, so he built the Learjet. He didn't want planes to get lost in the air, so he developed radio navigation systems, automatic controls, and actuators. He wanted to listen to music on his Learjet, and seeing as how records tend to skip on takeoff and landing, he developed the infinite loop tape system, which came to be known as the beloved 8-track cassette tape system, which was a Lear jet invention. On the Learjet, he built a closed-circuit steam turbine and created a chlorofluorocarbon liquid called lyrium to power it. Now, I just want to know, in the Protestant evangelical church today, where are our Bill Lears? Who are they? I'm sure we can think of some, but if you can't say one Right like that, right now, I think it shows that maybe we have some work to do. And maybe we need to revisit that able shepherd motif concept. And uh, with that, I will end with the interrogative, who is on the gospel home team now? So, with that, I will, uh, let's take a pause. How you doing? My father said to me when I was, um, the first time I ever spoke in public, he said, son, there's two rules you got to remember about public speaking and preaching. And I said, you know, I thought he would say something about, you know, staying true to the scriptures or making sure that you preach the gospel. No. He did not say this to me. He said two cardinal rules. Number one, the brain can only contain what the bottom can endure. And number two, if you can't strike oil in half an hour or less, quit boring people. So I've already probably transgressed that rule a little bit. But hopefully I've stirred the pot uh, here a little bit. So 
Uh, with that in mind, questions, uh, thoughts. Um, and if you're going to ask a question, I think we've got some, uh, some people with mics there in the back uh, at the ready that will come and greet you. And if you're going to ask a question, I would, uh, I would uh, ask that you state your question in the form of a question. Uh, that would be great. And um, so, let's see. Do we have anybody that would like to ask a question? Or? Here's Jim, Jimmy Nuker. Yeah. Oh, good. Sir, if you were going to create an outline, or excuse me, if, if you were going to create an action plan for today's church, what would that outline, excuse that action plan include? What would be some immediate steps for the local church? Yeah. I I have this line that I'm 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 uh, I, I like to use that. If I were going to plan a church today, I would install desks, not pews. Because I would want to communicate that what we are trying to do in the church is people to learn skills. Right? We should be, we should be uh, not only uh, willing to teach people, come to this seminar and we're going to teach you how to forgive your enemy. That should be a skill that you have in life, right? So you would use a desk for that. But I will tell you, um, although there's, again, a lot of talk about it, I think that the level of engagement on the faith and work question in most churches is so weak. You can go months and months and months on end to many churches that I have been to, and you can hear wonderful expositional preaching, and you can hear fantastic theological doctrines, um, and, and all preached without a whiff of heresy, and yet, at the end of the day, 95% of it seems to have very little bearing upon the life of someone at work, Right? So I would want in every discipline for there to be a salon set up, which is what does it mean to be a Christian to work through uh, issues in finance? Because there's something mega, mega important here, right? The integrity of global capital markets is the only thing that keeps the world from collapsing at any moment into abject, horrendous poverty, right? Right? But that integrity question is a big question. So we need more Christians in finance and thinking about, um, you know, why is it left up to the Michael Lewises of the world to, to write the big short? So that's why I, I'm trying to find friends like Michael Bontrager from Chatham Financial in Philadelphia that is suggesting that what needs to be set up, the part of the reason why uh, the big short is such a huge phenomenon is that there's ways of cheating in the financial market system. And so there's now the suggestion of setting up a different exchange that's really a level playing field. That Michael Bontrager is a Christian. He is someone that understood the, the role of the Clapham sect and how in, 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 uh, in a couple of decades, a relatively small group of people change the way culture thought forever about banking, about the education system, about prison reform, about hospitals, and of course, the abolition of the slave trade. So I would try to get the best people we have on the ground in each discipline to be teaching about their faith and work issues, the best kung fu possible. And I I actually think that that is... If you go back and you read about the Second Great Awakening in America and, and how, you know, and sort of Moody caught the tail end of it, it was very much focused on these practical things. Like how to, you know, we have, thank God we have things like uh, um, uh, celebrate uh, recovery and, and those kinds of things. I, that's the right start. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Uh, that's my. He he was nice. I told him to ask a question. We, I saw him in the bathroom earlier. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much for fulfilling your your pledge. Next question. 
being where you are in the middle of Wall Street, uh, how do you find yourself and your students, how do you speak with and engage that culture, the culture there that is so profoundly removed from anything related to the gospel? Like, what, what is the manner that you go about discussion and, and overcoming the, the barriers, the cultural and social barriers there? Yeah, thank you very much for that question. By, by the way, I should have, what's your name? Alex? Hey, Alex. Are you a student at Southeastern? Thank you for coming tonight. So, so here's the way I, I think that I found it happens. And we actually talked, we, we, Dr. Keithley, we talked about this at dinner tonight. I, I have found that the typical secular, quote-unquote secular elite New Yorker is not, most of them are not atheist materialists. They're, they're neo-pagans. They're interested in all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, they're, these are the people that are reading, you know, um, you know, they want to find what, whatever the, the most recent, you know, novel is in magical realism, right? Um, they're, um, they're reading Neil Gaiman novels and so forth. So uh, I actually find that the, the, the problem is, is not um, that they're closed down to any sort of transcendent explanation for things. They, they are uh, more bothered by, once you get closer and closer to the topic of the church, then they'll start talking about sex abuse scandals and so forth, Right. But my point is, is that you've got them for a really long time before you get into trouble with all that stuff, right? And um, I find, like, for example, if I see somebody on the subway, and by the way, I have to say I've, I've become a much more effusive evangelist because it's just such a great fishing pool. I mean, everybody, and you can talk to anybody. Now, on the subway in the morning... You don't talk to anybody. You stare straight ahead. If you make even eye contact, it is a microaggression, okay? But people get chattier in the evenings or when you go to dinner parties, you know, and they really genuinely want to know. So when I start describing what I do at King's, it is a fully accredited four-year undergraduate Bachelor of Arts our students compete with the Ivy League students. It's legit, right? Um, and yet, when I get to, it's it's uh, has a Christ-centered mission statement. They say, "No, what does that mean?" And then all of a sudden, you're in the gospel in just you know a couple of seconds. And then the, inevitably, you get, "Wait, are you are you telling me that you you actually believe in that stuff?" And you're like, the whole thing. <laughs> like, resurrection of the dead and the second coming and, you know, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from whence he shall come to judge the living. Every, the whole shooting match. And I think that if you just kind of lay it, you know, put the snake out on the table... And they actually do think it's snake handling. Um, it just, it actually, uh, it can take a really interesting turn. And, um, and so I would say, and this goes back to the first question. It's the, and this is what we're trying to do at King's. It's the Daniel 1-4 phenomenon, which is we remember the story of the fiery furnace and we re- remember how those faithful Jewish boys did not eat the rich portions and that they had the vegetarian diet, uh, which I think virtually no evangelical I know has anymore. But uh, be that as it may, uh, they did not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol and uh, they, they, they stayed true and were protected by the fourth man in the fire. Awesome. We don't hear as much preaching on Daniel 1.4 that those young Jewish boys mastered the wisdom of the Babylonians. That's how, after they came through the fiery furnace, 
they became ministers of finance and of government and of culture for a generation, right? So it's that wisdom of the Babylonians. If you've got the chops, you know, they might hear you again about this. That's why I think the faith and work question is so huge. Um, and clericalism is becoming increasingly a problem. Great question. I could talk about that a long time. Thank you, Alex, for that question. Next one over here. So, Greg, Mark, uh, and I want to just follow that up and see if you could connect. So a lot of us here are connected with Southeastern, and we have the, the moniker Go. We think about the Great Commission all the time, Go and Make the Disciples. Can you make the connection for us? Because there's a tendency for us to think of the Great Commission as go and rescue and then just create an enclave. Yeah. Versus what you're talking about, go and rescue and create a culture. Mm -hmm. Help us think through that a little bit, if you would. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think that, I think what we are, you know, what I said earlier, Mark, about, um, when we talk about, I understand what people like Andy Crouch mean when they're talking about culture creation, right? But we are part of a culture. And the, the, I find that the biggest challenge that we face with this rising generation is to help people see that there's a difference between faith and ideology. So... Before you can get to that culture creation question, there is a lot of deprogramming and sorting out of mental laundry that has to happen first. Part of what I'm saying tonight, which if you're really listening, is super, really, super mega depressing. It's mega, 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 mega depressing because we are really far down the hole. We're talking about culture creation. We're not even close to that. We're getting our pants beat off us on, on that. That's why it's so easy to say, go rescue and then create a conclave because the actual work of, of being up to speed on the chops question is, uh, you know... That's the first barrier. Um, so, but having having been well nigh apocalyptic, um, let me say that that I do see some really encouraging things that are that are happening, um, and uh, in the art in the art space, and in the world of technology. And in uh, the, I think we ought to be focusing on virtually every moment of culture and probably the last place that can be rescued right now is politics. <laughs> but that's the thing that we run to first. But politics is downstream from culture, right? We all know that. So um, I do think that there are some there are some good organizations. You know, there are hedge funds, like I said, that are being run by people that best in class. Like people come to them. So so we need to be okay with some things being uh, in a dotted line from the church, rather than saying it should all happen in the church. And I would just end with this. When the Protestant Reformation hit the Netherlands, uh, as opposed to the uh, pre-Reformation mentality where the entire life of the parish was centered at the altar in the Mass, the Reforma after the Reformation hit the Netherlands, during the week they would shutter the doors and the explicit message is you are supposed to be out there connecting the dots, right? So I think that there needs to be in every community who are the best people in their field and how do we resource that rather than only be focused on 
bringing it into the into the church. But what do I know? I mean, I uh, that's a great question. I don't have a total answer to it. Do we? Are we out of time? Can we have room? We have time for one more question. One more. One more question. Run on, please. William Branch, thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, I don't mean that. Well, just so you can clarify and leave us on a good note. This evening, are you saying a right understanding of Cain and Abel is God was pleased with uh, Abel because he rightly used sheep. Cain was displeasing because he didn't or rightly used his sphere mm-hmm. of planting. Mm-hmm. Kanye... Mm-hmm. is rightly using it similar to the way Abel did. Evangelicals are not. Hmm. We should be more like a Christian I mean Say it. Christ Christ centered. <laughs> a Christian, Christian Kanye. Christian Say it. Kanye um, and less like evangelicalism has been marked for uh, you know. Can I, can I give you a hug? <laughs> he has it. He summed it all up. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Got it. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And he said it in a tweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. That is right on the money. That is exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you, brother.